Welcome back to the Rab Mountain People podcast with me, your host, Andy Cave. In this series, we celebrate 40 years of the brand Rab and chat with key people behind the scenes. Here is a glimpse of what's coming up. We just did all these little gritstone climbs, soloing as many as we could. For my 16th birthday, I, I asked for a rope and my mum said, she wouldn't buy a rope, she wasn't sure whether this was something I was going to stick with. So I had to keep going soloing for another six months before she was convinced that this was something I would actually stick with and then I got my rope. He reached for the top and in, in reaching for the top he knocked his glasses off, which hit the ground next to me 30 feet below. And so I took him off belay, ran round the top of the crag, lay there, put the glasses back on his head ran all the way around to the bottom again, put him back on V-Lake, and he made that last move. Just mad. We were able to go in one long day from the high camp to the summit and back. Yeah. Fantastic views on top. Yeah. You could see K2 and Broad Peak and all the big 8,000 metre peaks. Rab gave me a call um, and suggested that I come down and, uh, and work with him. Our guest in this episode is Neil McCaddy, a man who loves a journey, especially if it involves climbing. The more adventurous, the better. Gogarth, Ben Nevis, Bolivia, Mont Blanc, or first ascents of giant Himalayan mountain, he's had a lifetime of it. Neil also has a strong work ethic and a sound business acumen. He was the sales director of Equip between 2002 and 2020. There's a wealth of insights here in this episode. I wanted to know how he and his team managed to ensure Rab stayed true to its roots, making respected, proper, trusted outdoor kit for the toughest mountain environments. There are plenty of wonderful anecdotes too, from his days on the legendary Snellsfield in Chamonix, from his time at Leeds University, and his endless adventures further afield. He is a great example of a British climbing weekend warrior. Neil, great to chat, great to see you, although I see you quite a lot anyway because... You're a good friend, and we don't live that far apart. But I actually don't know how you got into the outdoors. I don't think I've ever asked you that. Was it school? Was it family holidays? What? I mean, did you have adventurous family holidays? Yes, I, uh, my parents used to take us walking in Scotland, lakes, North Wales on holidays. Um, so typically, we would be perhaps camping, um, and would go to Scotland and. My dad was a hydro engineer, so we had to visit dams, and dams are in the mountains. And so typically we'd perhaps visit a, a hydro scheme and then go for a hill walk afterwards. So the whole family would be traipsing up a Munro on holiday. So that's how it started. It gave me a real appreciation and love for the outdoors. And were you keener than you? you got two brothers. Were you the keenest one in terms of going up these mountains, or was everybody on board? No, I think... Uh, I think as I, yes, I think I was the keenest, which led to a few family uh, discussions. And your mum and dad were, were both keen on the outdoors. How did they meet? It... Yeah, they interesting. They met. Uh, mum was from Birmingham, and dad's and dad's family are all from Wick, up by John O'Groats, and they met halfway in between in Glasgow in the nineteen fifties, um, and met through the one of the Glasgow hill walking clubs that would take people out of the city on a Saturday afternoon on a bus so they could walk in the mountains on a Sunday and get wow. back to the city for work on a Monday. So that's how they met. Brilliant. Yeah. 
So where out. were you actually brought up? Well, until I was 14, we lived in Southport, which is north of Liverpool. So incredibly flat. The, the only hills were sand hills. But when I was 14, we moved to Sheffield. And moving school at 14 to a whole new town was kind of an awkward age. I, I didn't really then fit into the, the friendship groups and the sports teams. So I looked for my own activity and soon found out that Burbage Edge, one of the Gritstone Edges, was three miles away. And I could cycle there after school and start soloing. And we had a Gritstone guidebook from from the library in Sheffield. And this would be 1978, 15 years old, going up to Burbage and soloing as many climbs as we could. Um, encouraged two or three other lads from school to come with me. So no ropes or anything? Not to begin with, no. Um, we just did all these little gritstone climbs, soloing as many as we could. And this went on uh, right through 1978 when I was 15. And then for my 16th birthday, I, I asked for a rope. And my mum said she wouldn't buy a rope. She wasn't sure whether this was something I was going to stick with or whether it was just a passing phase. So I had to keep going soloing for another six months before she was convinced that this was something I would actually stick with. And then I got my rope. That's brilliant, isn't so, it? So kind of bizarre. If you live, I'll get you a rope. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't happen now. No. Quite a different approach now. No bouldering mats back then. No. no. Just just threw ourselves, threw ourselves at the crag and learnt on the way. Brilliant. So you were literally making it up as you went along to some extent and did you meet other climbers out on the crag and start making friendships um a little bit yes uh local um local climbers but there was another influence who was the um art teacher ken jones who had done quite a few first ascents on the grit in the right. 70s yeah uh, and he used to take people out on a wednesday afternoon from school right so I did some routes with him yeah that's when i first met paul nunn Wow. On one of those, because uh, Ken knew Paul. And and he wrote one of the early guidebooks. Yeah, exactly, he, yeah. Yeah, he wow. was a, he It was his name on the front of the guidebook we were using. So, but it was a different, I mean, I guess there just weren't as many people doing it back then. No, when you went to the crag, you after a couple of years of climbing, you went to the crag, you were pretty sure that if there was anybody else there, you would probably recognise them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it was, yeah, it's different times. Yeah. And what about mountains? Because, I mean, you went to the, you ended up going to the mountains quite early. What was your first mountain yeah. experience? Was that in the UK, Scotland, or was it straight to the Alps? Or how did no. all that come about? Well, I think it was quite a, a traditional, it was almost formulaic, the, the approach that we all took. You climbed on the gritstone and then yeah. you progressed to go on the limestone in the Peak District, which was traditional limestone, yeah. traditionally protected. And then we went to North Wales to bigger crags um, and then on to the sea cliffs, yeah. all self-taught. Yeah. Um, and then we went to Scotland to go winter climbing. Um, and then if, if you survived that, yeah. you then went to the Alps um, and taught yourself to alpine climb. Uh, and then I would have been, when I was about 22, I first went to the Himalaya. Yeah. So it was just a progression. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. So, but but with the Alps, because um, didn't you end up? 
doing some quite interesting stuff at a young age? Well, the first season, uh, I was with my mate Flog from school. So I think I was 18 and he was 17. And um, we scrimped and saved and used old gear. And I had my dad's bendy leather walking boots with some strap-on crampons, but I don't, didn't really know how to put them on. Um, and we, we did the... Um, we did the Brenfa Spur, which again, in retrospect, I now think of as a big major alpine face. Sure. Um, but we just wanted to climb Mont Blanc and we didn't want to walk up, so we went up the, the Brenfa Spur. Because it's a, yeah, for people that don't know, I mean, it's the Italian side of Mont Blanc. It's quite complicated to get to. It's very remote. So if something goes wrong, you're really out there, aren't you? And it's a long route at it, high altitude. Yeah. It's big, it's high altitude. Route finding, big ice slopes, seracs. Um, so for an eighteen and a seventeen-year-old learning to alpine climb, it was. It's not the normal route at Mont Blanc for most no. people. No. Um, so you learnt a lot. But my crampon fell off in the middle of the night and disappeared, um, and then uh, Flog broke his ice axe in half. Uh, so we ended up with one axe, and I was hopping on one foot, all the way up the Brenfors the Brenfors Spur. Which wasn't least, snow, least, it was snow. At least your mum had bought you the rope. We had a rope by then, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we had lots of adventures. Um, yeah. And in, in, did you end up on the Drew as well at some point? or On the Drew with uh, another school friend, Steve Hartland. So how old Who then there? became, uh, he, Steve became, years later, an uh, uh, alpine guide, lives in Chamonix. And one of the first people to climb first British people to climb all the Alpine summits. I think, if not the first, the first. I think. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Legend. Great guy. So we uh, learned our Alpine climbing together. And, yeah, we we were so naive. We thought, well, we can rock climb, but we've had to go ice climbing. We're not very good at that. So we'll do something where you don't need to cross a glacier. And we chose the north face of the Drew, which, as you all know, you have to cross a complex glacier to get to it and a complex glacier to get off it. Yeah. But we were so naive, we just didn't know. It looked rocky. So, um, and we got a day up the north face of the Drew when this huge storm hit. And to this day, it's the biggest storm I've ever been in, in the mountains. Electrical storm, and you're on a big rock lightning conductor. A big north face, yes, which is attracting the lightning. Um, and we ended up with a, a bivy just by the niche on the north face of the Drew. Um, and our bivy bags were those plastic carrymore bags we used to have orange survival bags orange types. orange fold up survival bags which filled with water um and then the lightning hit the spire just above us and it went in my right fingers and out of my right toes which made me really violently sick and then we had to abseil off the next day with everything soaked and we chopped ropes in half and yes it was it two or three days but it didn't put you off no i think we thought it was uh all part of the adventure. Um, yeah, but we were very much of that era where you taught yourself to alpine climb. and No the... phones to ring for a rescue. No. No social media, no Instagram. It was just yeah, it's, yeah, a different kind of world. It's hard to appreciate that now, that when people went away, the people at home didn't expect to hear from them. You'd go away on a trip, uh, and say to your parents, well, I'll probably be back in the middle of August. Um, and then you'd 
perhaps sent a postcard halfway through, and then you arrived home in the middle of August. Just as well, by the sounds of it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, so I know you. I know you went at university. You went to Leeds University. I want to talk a, a little bit about that. But along the way, you had all sorts of interesting jobs, didn't you? What were sort of some of the jobs you did? Oh yes, uh, yes. An early job was just in the Loxley Valley on the outskirts of Sheffield. Yeah. Uh, I was 18 years old. I'd just passed my driving test. Just? Just, as in a week before. Um, And a friend of mine said, oh, I've just seen this job uh, advertised, which is for a chauffeur and gardener at this beautiful big country house in the Loxley Valley. So I turned up um, and I was interviewed by the 93-year-old lady of the house who gave me the job. Uh, and on the second day, I had to start driving her around in this four point two litre automatic Daimler Sovereign, wearing a peak cap and a suit. I'd never driven. It was just fantastic. <laughs> driving around the Peak District, hoping that somebody somewhere would recognise me. I could wave at them. Um, yeah, awesome. great. What a brilliant job. So Leeds University, I mean, Leeds is one of those... I mean, it's a real... If somebody young and they're keen on climbing... I guess the choice is whatever it's Sheffield, isn't it? Mm. Which was too close to home. It was too close to yeah. home, or it might be Leeds, Bristol, Bristol Manchester, yeah. maybe Edinburgh, and you chose Leeds. Did you know much about it, or you, you just knew that it was near a lot of climbing, or was it the course? Um, a little bit, a little bit the course, but um, yeah, I think mainly it was it was far enough away to be away from home, but not too far. Yeah, close to all the climbing in Yorkshire on the gritstone and the limestone. And it had uh, a reputation of having a good university mountaineering club. So all of that together just made sense. What did you study there? I can't remember. Uh, Geography. Okay. Geography combined with business studies. Okay, because geography's got that. It's kind of got the physical and the people side. Were you interested in both bits of that? I think before I went... I thought I was more interested in the physical side because it was glaciology and rivers and mountains. mountains. But I very soon realised that I didn't have the the maths and the scientific side of my brain to be able to do that and therefore got pushed more into the human side, which actually in the end turned out to be more interesting. And it's probably more you or... Yeah, with your career, didn't and... realise that to begin with. That's interesting. Yeah, but it went that way, and I'm glad it did. Yeah, nice. Yeah. And obviously, Leeds University is um, it's kind of a famous place. It had it had its own climbing club. Yeah. Um, uh, it had its own journal. There were some wild characters there. Uh, Martin Wilson, mutual friend, who used to kind of be able to juggle five axes, five ice axes, while on a unicycle. Yeah. Great guy. Um, loads of loads of great characters. You, you have an interesting story about a guy you climb with at Armscliff, don't you? Yes, there's a, another character at the club, Tommy Curtis, who I think you climbed with Tommy in Pakistan. First Ascent of Layla Peak in 1987. Yeah. And Tommy's a, he's a great mountaineer and he's a mad professor, genius type guy. Um, but very scatterbrained as well. You, you're smiling. You understand that one. Um, and 
it also is very, I think, short-sighted. Got big, thick glasses. He, yeah, he has to wear pretty thick glasses. Yeah, Tommy, yeah. and we were out at Armscliff one Wednesday night from from uh, university. Which is a steep, for people that don't know it, Armscliff is this sort of like turret of gritstone uh, yeah. north of Leeds with some really physical climbing. Yeah, steep, tough. Steep, yeah. jamming cracks, big holds, overhanging. Yeah. Uh, it's the, called the Wart of Wharfdale. That's right. The Wart of Wharfdale. And, um, and Tommy was leading this route, goes up a corner and then hand traverses right at the top. What's the route called? That the great Crack of Doom yeah. starts up the same thing and yeah. goes out right. And at the end of the traverse, which is like a handrail to traverse along, but with nothing for your feet, he reached for the top and in, in reaching for the top, he knocked his glasses off, which hit the ground next to me, 30 feet below. And he was ha hanging there saying, I can't see, I can't see. I said, well, the top is just above you, just take a hand off and put it on top. He goes, no, no, I can't. Where are my glasses? I've got them. He said, take the rope off, run around the top, lie on top and put them back on my head. And so I took him off belay, ran around the top of the crag, lay there, put the glasses back on his head, ran all the way around to the bottom again, put him back on belay, and he made that last move. Just mad. Awesome. In yeah, fact, yeah. I did um, 0.5 gully on Ben Nevis as my second winter route and that was with Tommy so scatterbrained he called me a different name on every belay all the way up it you know it's a little bit disconcerting <laughs> I guess he was doing his PhD he was probably uh, having some great kind of thoughts and coming up with some new theories yeah he was uh, doing his PhD uh, in sewage and sometimes he could come out of a pub and go, go into his lab and drink neat alcohol uh, after the pub, yeah. So, I mean, I first met you, Neil. God blimey, we're going back a bit now. It was 1986, and I remember I was in, where well, everybody did the shopping, in PPs in Chamonix, and you were with a guy, your climbing partner, who had an interesting haircut. He dyed his hair, and he looked a bit like a badger, <laughs> and one of his eyes was about six times bigger than the other, and it was all black and blue. And what had happened... You Looked just... like a badger, smelt like a skunk. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes, so we are talking about uh, our mutual friend, good friend, Andy Perkins. And I was climbing with him at the time, mid-80s, uh, in, in the Alps. And, Both uh, at Leeds Uni. Andy was doing his PhD. Andy well. was doing his PhD in Leeds. He was looking yeah. into harness construction and webbing, sponsored by Troll. Uh, I was an undergraduate. And we climbed together in the Alps for two or three years. Quite a good partnership, actually. And um, we just had quite an adventure on a, a fantastic route called the Central Pillar of Frenet. Famous route, one of the more most difficult ways at Mont Blanc. Yeah. Uh, Chris Bonington, first ascent. That's right. But only following to a couple of major epics with the European... Climbers right. who tried, tragedy, yeah. and lots of people died on it, and so basically, again, a really remote route, Mont Blanc. You've got a five hundred meter sort of tower pillar, mm. and so if something goes wrong, it's pretty remote. And well, it, it sounded like it was going quite well. <laughs> yes, I mean, it, 
it's part of a much bigger expedition, isn't it? Because you need to be able to ice climb and navigate and just to get to it. Yeah. And then the big pillar, but I think it was the first ascent of the season. So it was laden with snow. Right. Yeah. All the ledges and holds had got snow on. So we climbed the whole route in our plastic boots. Right. Um, at that time, you, everyone used to alpine climb in plastic Koflak Ultras, as they were, which are big, stiff, heavy plastic things. Uh, and we rock climbed in them because of the snow. And on the very last pitch of the Chondal, which is the needle at the top, and it was thick mist and it had just hailed. So it was a little bit out there. And the last pitch is a slab, which in plastic boots was tricky. Um, and Andy had climbed way up into the mist above me. And then I heard this clatter and he fell off the very last move of the whole route. And he fell the whole length of the slab, came past me upside down uh, and disappeared into the mist below me. Um, and to his massive credit, A, he pussed back up again to get to me. And secondly, he was able to get back on and lead the pitch. carried on. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was dozing on the belay. He woke me up on the way past. Yeah. Um, and I was so cold, I didn't want to lead. Um, but... But you became got good friends, on. and Andy. Be, I mean, now he's a sort of a mountain guide living in Chamonix. Yeah. Um, still out there working. Absolute legend. Good friend of ours. And I guess we were all at that time camping on the place called Snell's Field. I mean, there'll be, be people listening who might have stayed on Snell's Field. There'll be other people that have heard of it. There'll be people who have no idea what we're talking about. But essentially, it was kind of like a a semi-legal field somewhere in Chamonix. Yes. Um, or I guess people camped there, but sometimes you paid, sometimes you didn't. Describe it. I mean, there were people from all over the world on there. Yeah, the, it was an amazing community of alpine climbers who would scrimp and save enough money to go to the Alps and then, and then make that money last as long as possible by staying on the free campsite. Uh, which had a big boulder in the middle where you could go bouldering. Um, but, yeah, people from all over uh, Europe and America. Eastern Europeans. Yeah, I mean, the Poles, uh, and this was before the Solidarity Movement, so the Eastern Bloc climbers used to send somebody in advance of the rest of them to get a couple of campsites on the field and then plant vegetables and plant lettuces on the field so that when the others arrived... Everything was just coming to fruition to feed everybody. They, they had their own little gardens. Um, Incredible. Wasn't there something, I don't know, true about the Japanese where they had like this sort of master person that would tell them where to go and climb? Is yeah, the right? Japanese were, yeah, they, they used a different, um, I think, assessment of risk than the rest of us. And they seemed to be happy to commit to routes that we thought were unjustifiable. But whether they were taking their own, making their own judgments, or whether their central yeah. controller was telling them, I'm not sure. But they were pretty out there. And did you, you were talking about Eastern Europe, did you have a trip to Poland as well at some point? Yeah, climbing with the Poles was fantastic. So um, winter of yeah, February 1986, um, went on a exchange with the Polish Alpine Club. So the previous winter they'd been in Scotland, um, and we'd climbed in Scotland and then in Feb 86, uh, climbed in the Tatra Mountains. So again, this was when Poland was behind the Iron Curtain. 
But I took a train from Sheffield to Warsaw. As you do. Um, yeah, I think the bloke in the queue in front of me wanted a return to Barnsley and I wanted, you know, a single to Warsaw. Um, and it was great through eastern East Berlin and then Warsaw, it was minus 20. Uh, we had fantastic hosts. They really welcomed us. But it soon became clear that they'd saved a lot of vouchers to be able to buy food and they'd spent a long time queuing to get the food to feed us all. It was a really different world. And they uh, had an interesting way of descending the mounds, is that right? Yeah, the um, uh, sort of like a crester run off, um, off some of the peaks. It was very cold in the Tatra. So sitting on your bum and glissading. Fantastic hard mixed climbing. And then from these coals in the dark, sit on a, a, a sort of crester run type slot in the snow, uh, turn your torch off take your crampons off and just believe the Polish guy that this would go for a thousand feet down to the bottom. It's quite... Exciting. Yeah, leap of faith. So after yeah. Leeds then, so you end up... Did you, what, what happened then? What sort of work did you get involved with after university? Well, not much to begin with because it was there wasn't much about. Mid-1980s, it yeah, was a struggle. A recession. Yeah, struggle. So uh, unfortunately, you just had to go climbing for about a year. Tough. That was, uh, that was quite a challenge. Um, and then a little bit, I suppose, through desperation, I took the first job I was offered, which was a commercial role in uh, a big catalogue mail order company in Bradford. Um, and it taught me quite a bit about work, but it also taught me that it was no fun doing a job where you didn't have any affinity or emotional link with the people or the customers or the product. It was just a job. Yeah. And that's the main thing I took from it, is that this wasn't a way to, for me to progress for the next 30 years. And so you, went, you, you had some time out in America, is that right? Yeah, so I did it for two years and then went to the States for about a year, 15 months climbed all over the States and South America, um, which was fantastic. And what, you know. I mean, you know, probably people listening will have maybe, you know, been to the States climbing or, but it, I mean, it's different, isn't it? Did the Americans think differently, the whole scene? What did you, what surprised you or what did you like about America? And I think the two things that stand out for me is, firstly, I really liked the uh, positivity of Americans. Can do attitude. Can do. You know, you ask people in Yorkshire, how are you doing? Hmm, not bad considering. Go to America and even if the leg's hanging off, they'll tell you it's great. You know, Americans are positive. Um, and I enjoyed that. And secondly, um, not the cities, but the, the national parks in America. They are just fantastic places. Yeah, how they kind of manage that resource. Sometimes busy places like Yosemite, but they sometimes... Um, I was think yes, but I was thinking more just in the sense... I think it's really difficult to find true wilderness in Europe, Scandinavia apart. Yeah. Um, you know, there is no genuine wilderness left in Europe, whereas in in America... The population density is so low and the national parks and, and beyond are so empty, you can very easily disappear for a few days. 
even actually it's interesting isn't it? like five or six hours outside of the big cities on the west coast in the sierra suddenly there can be nobody at all yeah yeah and we have wonderful pockets of this in the uk where you can disappear for a few hours and you can do it on a tuesday evening after work yeah you know, the uk is fantastic for mixing the outdoors with your everyday life yeah but for something bigger and deeper than i think america and canada um i've got true wilderness it's great i mean scotland is probably our nearest thing isn't it yeah parts of scotland which i know is somewhere that you really love and obviously yeah. you've got that yeah. and actually you're wasn't it after the states where you were working for the north cape was that based in scotland yeah, so when I came back from the States, I ended up getting um, um, getting a role with North Cape, which was a, a successful outdoor brand of the time. Um, I mean, they were famous for making those unbelievable pile jackets yeah, they, big, that big you basically could not destroy. Yeah, yeah. And they'd been going for a long time, and they were a reasonable-sized company. Uh, and I joined running the sales and marketing side of of that and stayed there for 12 years and that was based in Scotland but my job was to drive all over the country um, running the relationship with all the retailers so selling the product to the retailers and supporting that which really was a made me a bit of a free agent to to run that however however I saw fit as long as it got the right results so you, it, yeah. it might be that you just happened to have the odd gap in your diary between appointments, for example, especially if you're in somewhere like North Wales with a lot of climbing around, is that right? Yeah, so my my territory was everywhere north of Sheffield. So North Wales, Sheffield, northwards. Um, and my job was to say, look after all the retailers regarding North Cape products. Um, but my enthusiasm for climbing was that I found it very, very difficult to drive past any climbing without taking advantage of it because these were places that you wouldn't be close to in your normal life uh, because it might be in the Lake District or Scotland or Northumberland and it'd be a Tuesday and you'd finish work and think well I don't want to spend three hours driving home without doing something first so yeah I did a lot of soloing classic routes just because it was opportunistic and I didn't want to miss out but of a respectable standard as well, you know, big, yeah, especially hard the SSE ones in yeah, the mountains. I'd like. Did it not seem risky, or you just it's just what you were doing at the time? I think when you're soloing, you, it's all about being in the zone, and if you're really feeling it, and your head's not cluttered with too much other stuff, um, it's as safe as it can be, um, and. Yes, I used to love combining soloing with running and coming out of a appointment in the Lake District and running up somewhere, doing a big route, coming down. Um, but the important thing is to know when to stop. Sure. You know, that, the people, that's the, the important the thing. The people you were chatting with and your relationships with, I guess trying to do in your salesman's bit, must have known that you were the kind of authentic thing. You're out there climbing. Yeah, probably the chalk on my hands when I came into <laughs> yeah. the appointment, came into the meeting. Or if you were late, yeah, yeah. they because, knew why you were I'd late. I'd just come down off Scarfell Crag or something, and um, yeah. yes, uh, I think it was, yeah, it was important to yeah. to be uh, authentic and 
and, and be living that lifestyle. And the industry was very different. When I first joined the outdoor industry, it really felt like um, a cottage industry supplying enthusiastic amateur retailers. And it rapidly changed. Um, but yeah, uh, for, so for example, the first four years that I was in the industry, I went to the Himalaya every summer because there was no work to do because it was a winter orientated industry. Wow. So. And you had lots of, I mean, alpine trips as well. I know you, you're, you're, you're a gentleman that likes a, a good journey. You always said that you like mm. to, you know, whether that's a, a day out in the UK and, um, you, you went on a, an expedition to India with John Porter and others. Tell us a little bit about that because that was quite a special trip, wasn't it? Yeah, that was a, a big trip in terms of numbers of people. And, and big in terms of the summit was one of the highest on-climb mountains in the world at yeah. the time. Um, but it was, uh, it, it was a big complex trip. There's an Indian guy called Harish Kapadia who was, I think, president of the Himalayan Club in uh, Mumbai and he had got permission from the army in India to go into this really remote glacier behind the Siachen. Sensitive. Si so the Siachen is the glacier where India are fighting with Pakistan. Yeah. But there's another glacier behind it called the Chongkumdan glacier where all the peaks were unclimbed and he got permission for us to go in there. So they had six Indian climbers and six British climbers. So it was a big trip and it took nine weeks um, and the peaks were just over 7,000, 7,100 and something. Um, and it was great, you know, with, I think we did four unclimbed peaks. Um, Amazing. So I was climbing with a guy called John Porter, a bit so, of a legend of Himalayan climbing, he used to climb with Alex McIntyre and people back in the day. Um, so he was one of the guys, wasn't he, that was part of that British scene that was really, really driving that Himalayan alpine-style climbing. Absolutely. Climbing in the, in the yeah. big mountains, the biggest mountains in the world, but climbing in a style where you're using very lightweight equipment and tactics rather than the siege mentality, yeah. that militaristic fixing ropes and Sherpas and oxygen. So you were kind of privileged to climb. Did you know him much? Did you know him that well before the trip? No, I think the link was Paul Nunn, because Paul was on this trip. And I went along to uh, a weekend to uh, help organise the trip. And John was there. And John just walked up to me, introduced himself and said, I'm climbing with you. Um, not quite sure why he selected me, um, but it worked well. And we climbed well together. The peak went well. It wasn't terribly difficult, but it was high altitude. And um, so all, How many days? Tell us about down. the route. I mean, what, what sort of terrain was it a different way up to down or we uh we were, we found the the easiest way was to go around the mountain so quite a long way from base camp to a high camp at the top of a glacier um, and then actually because this glacier was so high we were able to go in one long day from the high camp to the summit and back um, so avoiding any any bivvies on the route um and it was, I guess, classic sort of A, D, D alpine terrain where we did a few pitches and soloed a bit and a few pitches. Uh, nice exposed summit ridge. 
But then that kind of ground is often more difficult to come down than to go up. Sure. Um, it's not quite steep enough to abseil, exactly. but steep enough that if you make a small mistake, it could have pretty serious consequences. Yes, it was, it was uncomfortable down climbing. Yeah. But as you say, there were no belays as such to, ab to abseil from. And then we took a different route after that on the way down, committed to a, committed to a big shelf, uh, which turned out to be probably quite avalanche prone, but we were committed to it. So it had its moments. Yeah. Fantastic views on top. Yeah. You could see K2 and Broad Peak and all the big 8,000 metre peaks really clearly. And was it a summit. happy trip in terms of the relations, you know, Anglo-Indian? Yes, it was. In fact, in fact, really happy. And we're still in touch. You know, I'm still in touch with two or three of the guys from the Indian team. Um, so it was great. Yeah. Yeah. Do you really have good. Indian people to come over here and stay, or is that a different sort of link? Different no, that's a different link. On my, right. first, um, on my first Himalayan trip when I was 22 with Andy Perkins, we met a guy called um, Satish, who's a liaison officer. And it turned out he worked for Air India... So he had free flights, so he invited himself to my house and then said he was going rock climbing in Britain. And we took him on a three-week rock climbing tour around Britain. Wow. Uh, in fact, I, I did Wendigo on the Red Wall at Gogarth, a really, um, you know, quite funky sort of sandy rock, committing steep rock climbing. A bit off the tourist path, that one. Yeah, and uh, I was taking Satish up it. Um, and it began to rain halfway up. On the red walls at Gogarth. Yeah. Lovely. Um, and so I, I tried to lead to the top in one long pitch to try and get us out. And I kept thinking, blimey, this must be a long rope because I'm still climbing. And it turned out he'd just set off, so we were moving together up, up Wendigo in the rain with somebody who only climbed about VS. Wow. Um yeah, he's quite a good guy. I mean, you, you, I think over the years, you fair to say, you've probably had shown or enjoyed showing people from different countries around the UK, haven't you, really? You know, you've done that quite yeah, a Yeah, I like it. Yeah. Um, and what are the, you know, for somebody who, we might have people listening to this who haven't climbed in the UK, where would you, where are your three kind of, you know, if you're going to sh say to people, if you come to Britain? Well, I, yeah, if you come to Britain as a, as climber, a climber, as a climber, then... There's a few things that we have which stand out as special. I think the Gritstone in the Peak District is is quite special. Uh, sea cliffs. They're pretty unique. Sea cliffs, yeah. whether it's Cornwall or Pembroke or Climbing North by Wales the ocean. Yeah. or lots and lots Traditional of places climbing. in yeah. Scotland. They're amazing. Uh, and Scottish winter climbing. Yeah. Those three things stand out as perhaps the more unique aspects. Yeah. I think. Yeah, and I think the thing with grit as well, just going back a step, is a lot of people have seen like movies like Hard Grit, and so they assume that everything is absolutely death-defying E10s, but actually mm -hmm. you can climb on grit at whatever level, can't you? Perfect for beginners. Yeah. Um, right through to death-defying, and ev everything in between. Yeah. Yeah. So at some point, I guess you transitioned from Northgate to Rab. Yeah. What year yeah. was that? How did that come about? Did you? That was 2003. Right. And um, unfortunately, North Cape had had serious difficulties. 
largely based around the fact that um, they manufactured everything in the UK in a world that was increasingly making everything in Asia. And it was perfectly possible to manufacture in the UK. That wasn't a problem. But it meant that you had no money left to spend on design and marketing. So very quickly, other brands, other companies would produce a better product. Um, so North Cape disappeared. And I was lucky enough that at the same time, Rab, Rab Carrington, not Rab the brand. Yeah. So Rab gave me a call. Well, it was actually about 20 minutes later after... North Cape disappeared, um, and suggested that I come down and uh, and work with him. So, for me, that was fantastic because um, I loved the Rab product, the Rab brand. It was based in my hometown, and I knew Rab himself from climbing and and from the pub in Sheffield. Yeah. Um, so that worked well. And you hopefully were be, for both you were going to be closer to home. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, you were with the brand for how long? Well, na until I finally left, it was probably 18 years Yeah. with the RAB brand. So the first, or less than a year, with RAB uh, in Sheffield, the original RAB company, and then helped the brand transition to the new owners um, later in 2003. Um and then was part of that journey that went from the acquisition of the brand right through to where it is now. A journey of big growth and a lot of change. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about that. A sort of. Well, Rob Carrington had done a fantastic job in in setting the values and ethos of the brand and and establishing the the quality of the product and what it stood for. And it was all primed, ready to go but it needed to be handled very, very sensitively to be able to allow the expansion in terms of where it was made and um, and how the range uh, was expanded. So, yeah, so at that point, Sue and Rab had been running it for, well, from its, yeah, its conception, I guess, for yeah. 20, yeah. 22 years or something. Or, yeah. yeah, and they made everything in the UK, in Sheffield, yeah. but... but Rab knew that the world was changing and that to take the brand forward, you'd have to work with uh, offshore manufacturing and invest more in design, development and marketing. Um, so the best way to allow that to happen was to, to sell the brand to a company that already had all the contacts for offshore manufacturing. Because learning how to do that and transitioning to that would just be too dangerous otherwise. So, so Rab decided it was time for him to retire and concentrate on climbing. Famously went, to, went on to climb his first 8A at 60. Pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, um, the company was acquired, or the, the Rab brand was acquired by uh, a company called Equip Outdoor Technologies, run by Matt Gower. Again, not dissimilar, a self-starter had developed his own business over the previous 10 years. Entrepreneur. Yeah. Entrepreneur, but had done, had done so working with offshore production. So knew all the pitfalls, knew how to work with Asian factories. So Rab 
sold his brand to Matt at Atiquit, um, and I went with the brand, which I think was um, a good move because it enabled the retailers in the UK to continue to talk with with the person they already that knew. Continuity yeah. connection, yeah. So they knew me, I knew them, and it gave people the reassurance that we would develop the brand in a sensitive way, true to the original ethos and the values. So you were you sales still, or was it a, more than that, really? And it, did that change over time? Yeah, I was sales and marketing to begin with. Yeah. And then, as part of a bigger team, uh, it was important to, as the company grew, uh, your, your job would automatically narrow down. Sure. Um, and I went into sales rather than marketing and looked after retailers in the UK and then grew with the business and ended up eventually um, as head of sales globally with um, specialists in each country looking after the sales in their area. And how do you manage to, if you like, keep it real while being on such a big growth journey? Keeping it something that, you know, real climbers and real walkers and real outdoor people, yeah. they, 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 they want to use that. Well, I, I, yes, I, people shouldn't confuse scale with auth authenticity. I think it's possible to have both, as long as you keep the product and the messaging that surrounds that product um, genuine and true and honest to your own beliefs. So the fact that more and more people recognise it and want to buy the product leads to them giving you messages that will dumb down the product if you're not careful. So it's really important to stick to your original values and retain the design features and the quality aspects of the product, um, which are important for climbers and for the ethos of the brand. So being confident. In what you're doing yes and don't get um don't get tempted to to chase the the wider market even though the wider market is asking for it because the wider market will ask for it because they love what it is and if you then change it to what perhaps they are also looking for then you'll lose what it is so you have to be really quite strict it's like being a brand policeman or a a design policeman or a distribution policeman and just saying no to opportunities. And being so, clear about those values, I guess. Yes, and I, in the latter years, spent half my time saying no to uh, requests from major retailers to stock the brand. Because, you know, I used to joke, if, if they don't also sell crampons, then they can't have it in the shop. It wasn't quite like that, but yeah. pretty well. Um, but as the brand became better known, lots of other retailers would ask for a slice of the pie and wave big orders at you. And I just turned them all down. That's interesting. Um, just to keep it real and, and tight and manageable. And had you probably seen different brands, maybe do it a different way and seen how that could turn out. So if a way, yeah, in a sense, you'd seen what could happen so you knew the danger. Yes, and that's exactly right. So other brands had 
um, not been so careful in saying no, had accepted the wider distribution, and then it dumped, they lose their positioning. And um, Matt Gower at Equip had always said, I want to be the first brand to really make it, but still retain the positioning. Um, so it's it's a really it's been a really key point of the development actually is to carefully manage that and after all if you limit your turnover in a country by taking that strategy that's fine because there's 30 other countries in the world where you can try and become the strongest technical brand um, so becoming global is very very important to retaining um, a technical specialist position and understanding i guess each of those different countries with their outdoor and climbing cultures and presumably mm. all your not just your technical knowledge of sort of having climbed done all sorts of different climbing in different places but also understanding the countries and the people that must have been really valuable yes and the the sales teams in those countries who are I hope people like me who are climbers, skiers, outdoor people running the sales in their country, they, um, they're really important in feeding back to the design team as to what's required in their country. So typically, for example, many of the countries we sell to have a very strong ski mountaineering market, which is something in the UK that we don't really understand. So our sales teams in the USA, Norway, Germany, Alpine countries have helped tremendously in in developing sides of the range that the UK team wouldn't have developed on their own. And that makes the brand more rounded, it makes it more international, more colourful, but it's absolutely true to the values. Yeah. It's, it's self-reliance, self-propelled mountain adventures. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks, Neil. And I guess now you're you've retired. I have bailed out. Come out the other side. And so, what's a what's a I'm going to say a day or a week look like for you? I guess it depends, really. You've got quite a few uh, bit of gardening to do. I can see some hedges <laughs> to trim. Um, yeah, lucky we live right in the middle of a national park, Peak District, um, surrounded by running, walking, cycling, climbing right from the doorstep. So, yeah, between cutting bushes and looking after the house. And lots of motivated people around to do stuff with. Loads and loads of climbing, lots of friends. So, yeah, I've been fell running a lot this year um, and and climbing all over the UK. Um, of course, since, since I retired, there's been the COVID pandemic. So yeah. um, I haven't had the international travel that, I thought I would do in retirement. Yeah. But actually what that has meant is that I've revisited many of the traditional climbing areas in the UK in Scotland, Wales, lakes um, that I used to go to 30, 40 years ago. And they're just so good. That's been fantastic. Yeah, it's been... I think a lot of people have been doing that and they're realising how lucky we are, what we've got oh. on our doorstep in the UK, Pembroke, just Scotland, brilliant, brilliant. District. Yeah. Thanks, Neil. It's been great to chat. No, thank you. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe, hit like, or leave comments. That would be brilliant. 
See you next time.